there in our Bibles this morning to John, John chapter 1. So please do feel free to, to look that up. John chapter 1, we're going to pick up the reading uh, at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We've found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start with uh, you this morning. Uh, what are you doing here? Now, I hope that doesn't sound like a rude way to start a sermon, but wh why are you here today? And I want you to think especially uh, about the first time that you were here. Uh, the Biddy Graham Evangelism Association, or Evangelistic Association, sorry, uh, did a survey a while ago asking people what it was that brought them to church for the first time. Uh, and they recognized that there was a number of factors in this, but there were seven big factors. Uh, these are these. Uh, they walked in by their own initiative. That's one. Some of these will be a, a combination of a few things. Uh, or they liked the program that was being offered. There was a, an event or a series or um, some kind of service that was being offered that people were drawn to. Uh, they liked the pastor. Thank you, Chris, for laughing at that. But I presume that means sort of beforehand. So they did, I don't know, been to a service or they'd read a book or something. But they liked the pastor, so that was, that was one. Uh, they were evangelized. They met somebody who introduced them to the whole story of Jesus and, and believed and were saved. Uh, they had a practical need that was net, met by the church, and that was their introduction. Uh, they were attracted by the provision for children and youth. There was a great holiday club or Sunday school or youth group running, and they really wanted their kids to be part of it. Uh, or they had a personal invite from a friend or a relative. So we're going to take a quick survey this morning. I'm going to ask you to, to stand or to put your hand up uh, if you can't stand, if any of these apply to you. And there might be a, a, a mixture of factors. So let's just go through them one by one. How many walked in by their own initiative? Okay, so there's a, a couple here. That's great. Well, uh, in the survey that was done, that, that results in about 6 to 8%, which I'd say we're probably around that, looking around the room. Okay, how many liked a program that was being offered? Okay, that's really interesting because that's a small one. That's, that's 2 to 3%. So don't feel bad if you didn't put your hand up at that point. Uh, <laughs> should we bother with this one at all? About 10% uh, of the survey 
ha, like the pastor uh, before they joined the church. Uh, how many were evangelized before you came to church? Met somebody who explained faith to you and came to faith? That's great. Uh, in the survey, that's about 1% to 2%. So again, we're probably just around uh, the, the, the survey. How many had a practical need met by the church? There was something being offered. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, on the survey, that's about 3 to 4% of the church. Any came because of children and youth work? Yeah. Again, that's relatively small. Uh, that's 3 to 4%. Uh, how many came because of a personal invite from a friend? Okay, that seems like more. Uh, in the survey, that represents 70 to 85% of people. That's put the cat amongst the pigeons this morning, isn't it? 70 to 85% of people began through a personal invite from a friend or a relative. I don't know if I need to say any more this morning. It kind of says it for us, really, doesn't it? It's interesting, isn't it? Where we put our time and our efforts and our energy compared to what actually encourages people to come a personal invite from a friend. Interesting, isn't it? It's almost like Jesus knew what he was doing when he spent three years not on programs uh, or initiatives or provisions, pouring his life into 12 people. For the rest of the world, this must have looked like failure and then sent them to do the same. Another number uh, for you. Uh, this was a survey done by Tia Fund only a couple of years ago, and they interviewed about uh, 7,000 people in the UK, and they were specifically interested in uh, kind of attitudes towards Jesus, attitudes towards faith uh, and towards church. And the whole report is well worth reading. It's a fascinating report. Uh, but they were, they were interested in this number, the number of people who had stopped going to church or uh, who had never been in their lives who would consider attending given the right invitation. You interested in this? Yeah, me too. Uh, there was a percentage of that 7,000, and they worked out that when they put that percentage on the number of people living in the UK, 3 million people. It's not everyone. We saw earlier, didn't we? It's not the only way people find faith, find Jesus, find church. But there are 3 million people waiting to be invited to church. We're going to need lots of tea and coffee, aren't we, in a couple of weekends' time. How do you know that your friends, your relatives, aren't just waiting? Who knows who is one ask away from saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to an invitation? It's interesting, the last time they ran back to church Sunday kind of fully, you know, without all the COVID restrictions and, and limitations, was back uh, in 2019. And they asked an independent group to do a survey and say, well, how did this simple act of inviting people back to church, how did it do globally? What kind of increase did the church see? 26% increase in people coming and staying in church because somebody said, do you want to come to church with me? Who knows who is one ask away from the kingdom? I think of those people, they'd agree with the title uh, of this sort of mini-series we're going to look at this Sunday and next uh, as we prepare for that, uh, an inviting life, an inviting life. Years ago, 
when I was a kid. You know you know, those defining moments you have when you're a child and uh, something in you stirs and you think, yeah, I want, I want to be like that. I want to I do that. Yeah, you've had those moments. Maybe if you're a dentist, your teeth fell out and you thought, I want to help people with their teeth. You know, those, mo- those kind of defining moments. For me, I watched a musical called Barnum, which is about a circus, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, And then a few years later, we were married and had kids, uh, and the same musical was on in the uh, Millennium Center. Did anybody? Just me? Just just me. But it was real. You missed the trick. It was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I wanted uh, one of my kids who was old enough, then the other two were a bit younger. Uh, I wanted them to experience what I'd experienced. And so we went to the Millennium Center to watch Barnum. You're all thinking, what a cool guy we have. Uh, and so we're there before it starts. We, we, we got a really uh, good last minute deal. We were right on the edge uh, of the circle there in the Millennium Center. Uh, and before the show started, there were all these circus performers kind of mingling with the audience and sort of walking on stilts and walking around their hands and juggling all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we're sat there waiting for the show to start. And behind me, I can hear a voice shout out, can anybody here juggle? And they all, somebody's going to end up being asked to juggle. And this person, this child sat next to me, who I've taken to this show, out of the goodness of my heart, goes, my dad can juggle. Okay, oh, wow. So this clown, quite literally, I'm not being rude, this clown comes up to me and offers me like all these sort of things to juggle with. And I'm like, I'll just take three for now. I'll just take three. And I'm stood on the edge of, this, of the circle at the Millennium Center, looking down at the heads of all these people below me, thinking, if I drop one of these balls, they're not going to thank me for juggling today. But we managed to juggle, and, and we got through it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Have you ever been in a situation where a question is asked or a topic comes up and you know you've got the answer, you know you can do something, and your heart sinks and you think, oh, I I hope they don't ask me. I hope they don't ask me. I wonder if as people of faith sometimes uh, we can get caught in this thing. If that issue comes up, if that topic comes up, what am I going to say? What if somebody actually asks me about my faith? Do I feel ready to do that? Do I feel ready to share? And so because of that, we get very good at hiding things, don't we, from others? We get very good at, at disguising things as well. And interestingly, the most important stuff in our life is the stuff that we don't want others to ridicule or laugh at or shame. And so those things that are really true about us, those deepest truths, we bury the furthest. And we hide. We mask up. How can you and I move from that today to an inviting life? In this story that we share, there's many factors that I want to land on today. We will get to this story, but I just need to do a little bit of background before we get there. There's a person in the Bible, he's kind of important. You, you, you may not have, have caught how important he is. His name's Moses. Moses is super important in the story of the people of God. He comes at a time when the people of God have been enslaved for about 400 years. So we have centuries now of the people of God living in slavery, generations of it. People born into it, and then their kids born into this harsh, brutal, bitter slavery. And God comes to this guy Moses, who'd once been part of the system. 
who'd been raised as a, a prince in Egypt, who'd been educated, uh, who through a, a sin, through a murder that he'd committed, is now living out in the desert, feeding his father-in-law's sheep. At this point in his life, he's about 60. And God comes to Moses and says, I want you to go back, and I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him, you let God's people go. Moses is thrilled by this invitation. He can't wait to do it. Not so much. We have (coughs) excuses and and reasons not to. And eventually God equips him. God shows him that God can take a dead bit of wood. And if it's thrown down before God in faith, it can turn into something living, dangerous, snake. God shows him that if he will put his hand uh, in his cloak and pull it out, it can be withered but the God of healing and restoration can restore it just as quickly. And Moses becomes convinced, I've got to go. So he goes down uh, into Egypt. He returns to that place, and he stands before Pharaoh. says, let my people go. And there is this epic struggle between the hard heart of the Pharaoh and the power of God, plague after plague after plague, ten plagues which, yes, would have affected Egypt, but also would have affected Israel. You know, as a, as a little side note there, if God is leading you out of something and into freedom, that doesn't mean there won't be struggle. It doesn't mean that you might start again and again and again ten times it takes. But the people of God are, are, are released, and then there's this journey through the wilderness to the land of promise, a land that flows with with milk and honey. And Moses goes up onto the mountain, and although he won't lead them in, he sees into that land, that land of plenty, that land of provision, that land that that will be theirs, a land of promise. And of uh, Moses, these words are written just after he dies. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. There's nobody like Moses. I mean, who's come close to doing this? It's incredible. But the thing that they highlight is that the Lord knew him face to face. He did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses is the man. Moses is the hero. Moses is the pinnacle of their history. But if you were to ask Moses who the greatest prophet was, he'd tell you a different story. This one time God comes to Moses, and Moses is is prophesying, is speaking the words of God over the people. And then these words come. The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. It goes on to say, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and I will tell him everything, I will tell them everything I command him. So although everyone looks up to Moses, Moses is just pointing away from himself and saying, no, God will raise up another freedom fighter. God will raise up another rescuer, another prophet, who will speak freedom uh, over you. Look for him. And then from Moses, we have a, a season where there are all these prophets that come and prophesy, speak God's word into the life of the nation and into the future, everything that's going to come. And all of those prophets, every time one comes, people wonder, is this the one? Is this the prophet like Moses? And each one points forward to not them, but the prophet who will one day come. 
And through the unfolding of history, there's this revelation of what they're going to do, of, of what they're going to be like. They come to talk about the prophet who is to come. They discover his birthplace through prophecy, uh, the place where he will minister, the nature that he will die. It's all being laid out for them, revealed over time. Moses and the prophets pointing forward to one who will be prophet, priest, and king. I found something out recently. I don't know if you knew this. But uh, Wales has a football team. Did you know this? It's incredible. They're doing very well. I'm not sure when they started, but they're doing very well. I heard recently that they've qualified for the World Cup. I pretend to be excited, people. I know for most of us it's the wrong shape ball, but you can pretend to be excited. But I can guarantee that even if you're not really into football, as you can probably tell that I'm not... If they do get into the quarterfinals, the semifinals, or the final, you can see how much faith they've got, the final, I might not be a massive supporter, but I will be cheering them on. I'll be there if they do something, if they get somewhere. And kind of the mood in the nation of Israel at this point in history is that this belief in the prophet who will one day come is now centuries old. And for most people, it's like, well, if it happens, I'll cheer it. If it happens, I'll, I'll get involved, but I'm not committed to it. I can't, I can't see it happening anytime soon. Now, that's not true of everyone, but that's the kind of the general feeling. It's, it's gone way too long. We've gone way too far. But if it happens, it'll be wonderful, but there's no faith for it, no expectation for it. But that's not true of, of, of everyone. There were a group of people who would meet together to study the prophecies, They'd often gather in public places under the shade of a, of a fig tree, and they'd share together that there is promise, there is hope. We have to look. God will do this. God will raise up another prophet. And of course, at this time in history, the, the shadow of the Roman oppression, it weighs heavy on their land. Every time they pay taxes, they remember. Every time they go to temple, they remember. Every time they walk the streets and see the, the glistening armor of the soldiers, they remember, we are not free. This was a land that was promised to us by God, and it's been ripped from us. It's hard to see from that position where God is going to come in, but there were people that would meet and whisper this hope, whisper this promise to each other. They thought of themselves as the true Israelites. You know, others might have been born here, might have lived here, but they're not they're the sort of fair-weather supporters, really. They're not true Israelites. We're the ones holding this whole thing up. We're the ones still looking, still reading, still praying, still talking. And then this happens. Uh, this fig tree, this place where they would meet, uh, it's a significant symbol for them. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, there's this thing about Israel and, and fig trees. It's used so often uh, in the prophets as an example of fruitfulness. You know, fig trees, when they grow, are beautiful things, and the, the fruit is fresh and refreshing. But when there's nothing on it, it's just a disappointing mess. And that's what the prophets say to Israel again and again. Where's the fruit? Where's the evidence that we're God's? Where's the life, the joy, the flavor of being part of the kingdom of God? But then in Micah, as he looks forward to the end times when God will come and reign and be king again of his nation, he writes this, everyone will sit under their own vine." and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty 
has spoken. And there were those who would set the true Israelites and hold this promise before each other. We've got to wait. We've got to be ready. We've got to look. It's going to happen. One day, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. Galilee, this large area, it's um, in the Bible often called uh, the Sea of Galilee. But as you can see from the map, it, it wasn't actually a sea, but it was so big, it was talked about in that way. It's an area of stunning natural beauty. It gets its name from its shape. The, the, the name in Greek sounds like a harp. Uh, and the shape of the, the river, if you go, or, or the sea rather, if you go big enough, uh, the lake is, is this harp shape. Uh, and that place gives energy, gives life. There's, there's lots of industry that, that flows from this place. Fishermen uh, will spend their lives learning the, the corners, the nooks and crannies uh, of the, the Lake of, of Galilee. And then all around that, uh, there are these markets that form. There's this work that comes in. There's this trade that flows because of the Sea of Galilee. And just north to the right of the Lake of Galilee is this place called uh, Bethesda. Beth meaning house. Whenever you read the word Beth in the Bible, it's, it's house, so we are Bethel, Beth-el, El being short for Elohim, so this is the house of God. But this is not that kind of house. This is Beth-seda, and seda means hunter. Beth-seda were known for being hunters. They were known for being tremendous fishermen. Uh, they kind of prided themselves on being the best in the area, the, the best around. There's a lot of important trade that flowed through that place. So if you were up and coming in Galilee, the place you wanted to get to was the house of hunters, the house of fishermen. This is where it all happened. This is where it all took place. And one day Jesus goes to Galilee and he meets somebody from Bethesda, a guy called Philip. And he invites Philip into this way that he's creating. He says, come, come follow me, Philip. Come and be part of this kingdom of God here on earth. Leave this behind. Come and find a new agenda, a new purpose. And Philip is one of those people, he's a first responder. He just initially and quickly just leaves and follows. We know nothing else about his story, just that he gets up and goes. He leaves. And then he thinks to himself, ah, I've got to tell my brother about this. A guy called Nathaniel. I've, I've got to invite him along too. Interestingly, I think this is about the seventh invite we have in, in John chapter 1. And we're hardly into the book at all yet, are we? But Philip goes to tell Nathaniel. And Philip goes running up to him with this passion. He says, Nathaniel, we found the one that Moses wrote about. That ancient old promise, the one that the, the prophets wrote about, we found him. How do you talk about Jesus? For Philip, Jesus is everything that was promised. Sometimes we talk about him in this really small, kind of, I don't want to offend anyone kind of way. He's my friend, my forgiver. Philip goes running out, Nathaniel, we found the one that Moses wrote about, the hope of our nation, the hope of the ages, the hope of the world. We found him. At this, Nathaniel's ears would have pricked up. His eyes would have been full of hope. And then Philip says to him, it's Jesus from, from Nazareth. Come, come, come and see him. And as soon as that name has been uttered, Nazareth, Nathaniel is not interested. 
Bethesda is a real important town, real significant place. It's really easy to get to, uh, which is why the, the trade is so good there. Nazareth couldn't be more different to Bethesda. It's up in the mountains. It's this tidy little obscure place. Uh, people who've gone and, and dug there, archaeologists, have found about 300 homes there. It's a real t- small, insignificant place. It's not near anywhere special. It's kind of in the shadow of another place called Sepphoris, where Herod had commissioned the building of this massive temple. And it was kind of in the, in, in the shadow of that, really. So people from Nazareth, if they worked there and grew up there, would go to Sepphoris for work. What was Jesus' dad's job? He was a carpenter, a word that can also be translated as a stonecutter. So the chances are that Joseph and Jesus went to Sepphoris to help build a temple. I think that's kind of cool. Uh, but anyway, Na- <coughs> Nazareth is not known for anything on its own. If you read the Old Testament, you know that it's a book that's filled with different places and names and their significance. Nazareth isn't mentioned once. In the whole of the Old Testament, he's not known for anything. And so, this man of the house of hunters, Nathaniel, hears the word Nazareth and just goes, Nazareth? You think that the one that Moses prophesied, the one that all the prophets point towards, is going to come from there? He says, can anything good come from there? You've heard the phrase, unconscious bias? Nathaniel's got a very conscious bias. Nothing good can come from there. You're wrong, mate. Just forget about it. And so Philip does what a lot of us would do and think, well, I did ask. I did try. He goes back to Jesus and says, well, I did invite him, but he said no. No, not so much. He gets into this big theological debate about, well, it doesn't actually say Nazareth, but it does talk about Galilee a lot in the prophecies. So you, you could be wrong about that. It talks about him being despised and rejected as the people of Nazareth are. So maybe it's that. He doesn't get into any of that. He paints this big banner that says, God hates Nazareth deniers. No, he doesn't do that either. Philip brings out the big guns. Let's come and see. Nathaniel, don't you take my word for it. Just come and see. And after all the years the church has tried to argue and barter and bargain with people, isn't it time we simply said, come and see. And you might be wondering, well, how will people see Jesus today? Well, I've got some really good news for you. The Spirit of Jesus lives in you. Christ is in you. The hope of glory. Come and see. And Jesus can and does radiate through you. What's that thing he says in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light... What light does, isn't it? A couple of years ago, uh, somebody realized that one thing that every household needs here uh, in the UK, especially if you've got kids, uh, is a trampoline. Uh, It became the law in the UK that if you've got kids, you have to have a trampoline. The amazing thing about the way that they were designed and created is that they never sort of fade over time. They always look really clean uh, and well presented, and they make your garden look great. 
Uh, and then eventually, and it is a sad day when it happens. It doesn't come from you often. It comes from the kids first. Somebody will say, isn't it time we got rid of the trampoline? And a little part of your heart goes, but it is. It's time to let go of the trampoline. So we've only relatively recently got rid of what was becoming quite a feature uh, in our garden for weeds and ivy and other such things. Uh, but we got rid of it. And underneath this um, trampoline was a big patch of dirt. Uh, it looked as though somebody had gone to the Sahara Desert and carved out a perfect circle and planted it for me in my garden. It was hard, it was solid, uh, it, it was rough. Uh, when it was first there, it was like this perfect circle. And so for a while, I was uh, selling tickets to come and see the site of a UFO landing. But that's kind of gone now. But it was, it was hard and solid. The other day, we were out there, and from the ground have started to grow. Little weeds, little bits of grass. And nature, life is, is pushing back. Life is, is happening. All we needed to do was, was to let the light in. Can anything good come from there? Hard, nothing, dust, death, no. Philip's answer, come and see. Why don't we let the light in, Nathaniel? Why don't you take a look? Because when you see him, See, sometimes we, we meet people, don't we, who seem so, so hard. You know, it's, it's like we're trying to sow seed and it just bounces off. We're trying to share things and, and it's just not happening. And we wonder, will they ever believe? Some of us have got people in our family that we pray for daily that their hearts will be open. People that we work with, people that we know we ache and we long. And sometimes because of that, I think we can do damage when all that's needed is to let the light in. To let them see Jesus in you. To let them see Jesus in you. Can anything good come from there? And maybe that's a question that's being asked at the moment of the church that bears the name of this Nazarene. After years of public failure and disappointment, times when the church has got things very, very wrong, can anything good still come? From there, can Jesus still be seen? So Nathaniel, this man of very conscious bias, comes walking begrudgingly behind Philip. All right, Phil, well, if you think it's worth a quick chat, I'll come for a quick chat. And as he's approaching, Jesus sees Nathaniel. And I don't mean he just sees a person walking towards him. He sees him. He says, here's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Because you can't deny that from Nathaniel's reaction, Jesus has said something very important. I mean, Nathaniel's had two seconds, really, with, with Jesus, and he's going, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. So this isn't just a nice, neat little phrase that people greeted themselves with. Here's a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. The word for deceit that's being used here, some of you might recognize it from the older translation that says guile, in whom there's no guile. 
the word in the Greek that is used there is the word now today that we use for decoy or bait. But this is a person who doesn't use their words to try and trick or trap people. If they're thinking it, they say it. We've met people like this, haven't we? We know people. There is no filter. You know, if it's here, it's here, and it's gone. And we've just seen that happen, haven't we? He's already decided that Jesus cannot be the one because of where he's from. What a world they lived in. But Jesus sees into this heart. He says, here is a true Israelite. We've already, we've already seen what that was. People who met under fig trees and hoped and longed and prayed for the day when God would come, for the restoration of the kingdom, for all that was promised to come true. He sees the best in him. He says, I can see your passion. He says, I also know that you're a person who says what they think, which uh, for somebody who's just said what they thought about this person could have been a bit of a shock. And so Nathaniel says, how do you know me? You can see my passion, my heart. You also see my pitfall, my mouth. So how on earth, having looked at me for two seconds and described me in what? 12 words, 11 words, a couple of words. How can you describe me so well? At first glance, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. And again, this is not just a description of a location. I know that you've spent your life waiting and looking and hoping and praying, and when others have given up, you've, you've clung on, and as you've looked, and when there have been moments when it's felt like somebody was there, when your very goosebumps have, have, have come alive with the idea that the one that Moses promised might be walking among us, I saw you. I saw your passion. I also know your pitfalls. You might as well know if you're going to follow Jesus. He already knows all there is to know about you. I don't know if people just let you knew this when you first followed him, but there is nothing about you that he doesn't know. The good, the bad, and the ugly. But he stands before Nathaniel and says, look, I, I know you. I see you. It's amazing, isn't it, that in the ministry of Jesus, in the way of Jesus, there is room for the Phillips, the people who will respond immediately and instantly with passion, and they get so passionate about it, they're fishing before they even started following. And there's room for the harder ground, those who will take a while for faith to grow, for light to come. There's, there's room for both. And Philip is, is uh, Nathaniel, sorry, just overwhelmed by this. And he says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. I love these words. Effectively. You believe because of that? Just you wait and see. You're going to see greater things. See, Jesus doesn't just see people's past. Or Jesus doesn't just see people's pitfalls. He doesn't just see people's initial reactions to him. He sees this potential. He sees their future, and he sees it 
while they're still under the fig tree. You're going to see heaven open. The angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In the NIV version, it's put that uh, in, in quotes, in, in, um, uh, in not inverted commas, what are they called? Quotes. They put it in quotes. You could tabulate it, what it means. Because it, it is a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote about a guy called Jacob. Jacob who one day woke up and realized God was in this place and I was unaware of it. A man who had a vision of a ladder that went up to heaven. And angels ascending and descending from the place that they thought God was that they could never get to, right down to the place where, where he was. And interestingly, there's a description about Jacob. A description that probably came to mean a lot to Nathaniel over the years. Somebody who knew the scriptures well, that he was a man of guile, a man of deceit. And he looks at this Nathaniel, this Israel, and says, here's an Israel where Jacob has been removed from him. He says, you're going to see, Nathaniel, so much more. And I wonder if that group of disciples that watched from a distance as this same Jesus was taken to the cross and nailed there, saw him lifted from the earth, suspended between earth and heaven, who spoke over the earth, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I wonder if they finally realized that there was now a ladder, that there was now a way, that there was now a hope, that this Moses, this prophet, had not come just to release them from a period of history or a place, but had come for all places and for all people. Yes, people who, like Philip, would go on to have a tremendous future. Philip, what he does for his brother, will do for the rest of his life for people. You read the book of Acts, you see Philip, he can't help it. Everywhere he goes, he's just introducing people to Jesus, just inviting people to Jesus. Nathaniel just gets mentioned in a few lists. Sometimes other gospels call him Bartholomew, so it's a guy who's kind of got a few different names, but he doesn't seem to do anything massively significant. But Jesus loved him and invited him into this way. And I wonder who it is today who we look at and wonder, will you ever come? Will you ever believe? Will you ever want to know this Jesus who is actually just one ask away? He just needs the light to shine. Perhaps you could pause to pray together this morning and I just want to give us a moment to think about where this lands for each and every one of us. For some of us this morning, there will be an invitation. There will be an invitation to allow Jesus to know us. To stop the hiding. To let the light shine. To welcome his light.